Welcome to the More Than Hearers podcast. I'm your co-host, Orion. With me is host, Peter Willis. We talk Bible on this show. Today, we're in the book of Romans, chapter 1. Let's have some fun. It's still awful, so I don't know about that. Hit me. What, What are we even talking about today? Romans. Paul's epistle or letter to the church in Rome. Uh, it's this cool book. It's it's actually a unique book in some ways because it's Paul writes this epistle to the church in Rome, and unlike Ephesians or Corinthians or oh, there's two of those Corinthians um, uh, or Colossians or some of these other letters, like when Paul wrote Ephesians, he wrote to the church in Ephesus. It was a place he had been. It was a church he felt he helped found. Uh, it was birthed from his ministry. He writes this letter to the Romans. He's never even been to the church in Rome. He didn't found the church in Rome. He's not like the spiritual father, if you will, of the church in Rome. It's a place he longs to go. It's it's his favorite town. It's his favorite place in the world. And then there's this up uh, uprising is the wrong word because that sounds violent. There's this upswell of faith in Christianity in Rome. Um, he's excited to go there and try and help uh, build and grow the congregation. And he'll actually address it towards the end of the book of Romans. His plan to go, which totally falls apart, by the way, if you, spoiler alert, read Acts, <laughs> it doesn't go the way he intends at all. He intends to go to Spain. His goal is to go to Spain to, to advance the gospel there and to start to plant churches. And Rome, in his mind, is a stopover point. He's super excited. Uh, he writes the epistle to Romans, by the way, just for a little backstory, while he's in Corinth. And in Corinth, if you read 1 Corinthians, um, he's taken up this collection. Um, Actually, you wouldn't know that from 1 Corinthians, sorry. If you look at it in Acts, when he's in Corinth, he's taken up a collection to go to Jerusalem. For the church in Jerusalem, for the church in Israel that's built up and struggling. If you know the book of Acts, and maybe we should have started in Acts, but we're in Rome. (laughs) We're dealing with Romans. In Acts... Uh, persecution breaks out in Jerusalem big time, and everybody Christian-wise bails out of Jerusalem except for the ten and a half or eleven and a half. Uh, no, it was ten and a half at this point. James, Wait, who's the half? Uh, Matthias, Matthias, whatever. He's the the guy who was picked to replace Judas. It's probably not really a half, but I, it's sorry, it's a poor attempt at humor. Well, I just need to know who's only half the man. Yeah, he's that, he's a half an apostle, I guess. He's really not. I mean, they identify him as an apostle. He gets full apostolic credit. I say it in jest. By the time this letter's been written, James is already no longer with us. So hence 10 and a half, or really 11. Um, he gets to be a whole guy. But uh, the Given original that. 12, Judas, of course, took his own life at the end of the Gospels. The opening of Acts, they replace him. And so there's 12 again. But by the time this happens, eh, experts agree uh, the book of Romans was probably written mid-50s A.D., 54, 55, or 55, 56. Some people even 56, 57, but mid-50s A.D. James is already not with us. So uh, anyway, backstory. All in Jerusalem, Christians are chased out of town except for the 10, 11, sorry, 10 and a half, 11 Apostles, they stay behind to continue ministering to the Jews there, trying to grow the church. But everybody else has bailed. And so there's not a whole lot of funding coming in from the church in Jerusalem because there isn't much there. There aren't a lot of people there. 
And so Paul takes up this collection while he's in Corinth to take to Jerusalem. Can we, I know you're, this is your intro. Can sure. we talk about that collection? Ooh, we can. I mean, are we going to get there or? Not really. No. I, I was okay. giving it more for historical context, but we can, we can talk about it. I'd that. like to just because you hear a lot in modern Christian churches. It's, it's, it's a uh, hip to, to say, but it's also convenient because everyone's heard the term or whatever, but this whole concept of the tithe. Ooh. And when, when taking this collection, is this a tithe? No. No. The, the tithe, if you want to talk about the tithe, if we, if we could capitalize it. Uh, even just what, what is tithe? Tithe is the 10%. It was the 10% of whatever that was given to the Levites, to the priests for the work of the temple in, at that time in Jerusalem, really. It was a, a Jewish uh, command, if you will, under the law that the other 11 tribes, the tri- Israel, 12 tribes, yes. one of those tribes were the Levites, the, the children of the descendants of Levi or of Aaron, um, who their entire role in the nation of Israel was service to the temple, whether it was priest or high priest or gatekeeper or floor sweeper in the temple or whatever. Those were Levites. That was their job. Other tribes were hunters, gatherers, fishermen, builders, whatever they were, but they had a way of sustaining themselves, of making some sort of income. Whereas the Levites, their whole job was the temple. So there was no like, nobody was coming up and like, oh, temple? Here, that's how much it gets paid. That money has to come from somewhere. So the other 11 tribes gave a tenth or a 10% or a tithe to the work of the temple to sustain the work of the temple. And it covered all of the, the needs of the, the priests, these Levite priests. Right. But it also, if you read in the Old Testament, we've got uh, clear from God what was to be used with anything that was over this amount, that over, over what was needed. Right. When it's a storehouses, if it wasn't needed by the rest of the community, and then if it was, the poor, those, we could call them brothers and sisters in the Lord, even though this was before Christ, uh, this, these other people, the sons and daughters of God, they were to receive that uh, if they needed it. They could come to the temple in need, and out of those storehouses was how they were Sustained. I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah. So here, I think it's interesting that uh, in your backstory here for Romans, you've got uh, an example of the the tithe. If I could put quotes around the tithe, uh, but these offerings were not to pay for a priesthood because we have Jesus as our high priest. We no longer have priests in Correct. Christian faith, right? But that secondary function of the the offerings become, becomes the first, the primary function, and it was to help those brothers and sisters in need. And I just think that's really neat that that's and, an example of it happening. And not just to help brothers and sisters in need, but in this particular case, in the context of the collection that was taken up in Corinth and brought to Jerusalem, for the advancement of the growth of the church. Yeah. It was, you know, the, the central working of the church at the time was the, the, the 11 who were left were, you know, they were teaching in the temple area. They were um, sending people out to various regions and that kind of thing. They even, um, by about Paul's second missionary journey, were sponsoring him to go to different places. It was an advancement of the kingdom, and it was to sustain these guys so they could focus on that work without having to worry about a nine-to-five on top of it. 
Not that there's anything wrong with a nine to five because some places Paul went, he made tents. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes money came in and he was like, cool, done making tents for a little while. I can just preach seven days a week in the square, in the synagogue, in the wherever. And um, so in Corinth, he takes up this collection to go back to the, the church in Jerusalem. And his plan was to go there, give the collection, and then head to Spain and hit Rome on his way to Spain. What happens is he goes to Jerusalem and he gets arrested. And he gets taken before just about every leader in the Roman world at the time, starting in Jerusalem and then over the Israel, Israel area. And finally they put him on a boat to send him to Rome because Paul, a Roman citizen, goes, I get to appeal to Caesar. And they're like, well, now you got to go to Rome. So they throw him on a boat. He gets shipwrecked. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake. He gets all sorts of mess. But he ends up in Rome. And Paul will not leave Rome alive. He will get really close to out of Rome, but he's like walking out of town and they arrest him again. And he, he, he never sees outside of Rome again. But when he writes this letter, he's like, I'm going to go to Rome on my way to Spain after I drop off this offering or this collection in Jerusalem. Again, <clears throat> he's never been to the church in Rome before. The church in Rome, historically, we think just sprouted up out of, we know from Acts chapter 2, kind of the gospel exploded at Pentecost. And there, because it was a festival time in Jerusalem, there were Jews from all over the known world in town. Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit falls on uh, the apostles. 3,000 people get saved. Peter preaches a, a great message. And he has a really cool altar call with some like spooky music. And they turn down the lights and they ask people <laughs> yeah. to raise it. No, that's not what some happens. Harp. It's, it's right. actually super cool what happens. Peter preaches this message and he doesn't have to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes and no looking around. He gets done preaching and 3,000 people go, sirs, what must we do to be saved? If this doesn't make your head explode, you're not hearing me. We all have been in these church services where the music gets played just right. One guy's real gentle on the piano, maybe a little guitar. You got that one patch on the keyboard. Oh, I love that patch. We turn down the lights. Everybody bow your heads. Nobody looking around except for the deacons and maybe a couple of ushers who got a packet you got to fill out because you gave your life to Jesus, but you got to sign on the dotted line. And just slip up your hand real quick. Just, just slip up your hand. That's not what happens here. Peter goes, look, there's this Jesus guy. You killed him. And he came for you, and he still wants to be a part of your life. Amen. And people go, what do we have to do to be saved? 3,000 people give their life to Christ, and they go home. And so the gospel spreads that way, besides Paul hitting up and setting these churches up in Asia Minor and in parts of Roman districts like Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and Galatia and all of these other places. Yeah, when you say when you say they went home, this wasn't just down the street. No, no. There were people in Jerusalem at the time from all over the known world, which at the time was mostly Rome. The Roman world encompassed most of what we know as southern and eastern Europe and even parts of western Asia, um, Turkey and that sort of thing. That was all Rome. The Middle East today was all Rome. It was all Roman provinces. Even um, Rome had some influence even in northern Africa. So it was, Rome was everything. Uh, and so this church in Rome sprouts up on its own. And there's a couple of things, or there's one major thing going on in the Roman church at the time. There are two factions in the church. It's like early denomination stuff right here. Oh, yeah, yeah. You had Jewish converts to Christianity, and you had Gentile converts to Christianity. And they weren't getting along super well. 
the Jewish converts are like, we're better than you because we're already God's chosen people. And now we're mm. Jesus chosen, God's chosen people. And you're just Jesus chosen people. And so we're <laughs> a little bit better than you, just kind of low key better than you, but we're better than you. Father and son beats son alone. Is that the it's kind of the theory <laughs> behind it? Or that was the assertion they were making. And so Paul writes this letter kind of ahead of going thereof. Um, and you'll see it in a few places, especially early on in Romans, where he's just trying to sort this out of, yeah, God came to the Jews first. The covenant was with Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and on to David and Jesus came through that line. But understand that he came and, and even the Old Testament talks about God coming to the nations. And when you see the word nations in the Old Testament, it pretty much means every nation but Israel. Everyone else. And all the other nations, all the nations, even the ones that hadn't come yet. But, um, and so uh, the plan from the beginning for God was all people, but it really starts to explode out through Christ. And so the Gentile Christians are like, no, Jesus came for us too. And the Jewish Christians in that church are like, yeah, but we were kind of here first. We have the law and Jesus. You just got Jesus. And so you're going to see, especially chapters 3, 4, even into 5, where Paul goes, so? I mean, he goes, yeah, it first came through the Jews and then to the Gentiles, but it came to all of us. I, we'll see in chapter 4, he gives this great um, dissertation on Abraham and how Abraham righteousness was credited to Abraham through his faith before the law was ever even given. Before he ever even got his covenant with God of, I'll make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea, he, it was already credited to him as righteousness through his faith in God before any of that, before the promise, before Israel, which Jacob was named Israel, was ever even born. It was through faith. And Gentiles, a Gentile myself, have access to God through faith. And Paul goes, it's the same for all of us. We have the same access as Gentiles that Abraham had. Abraham, the father of all Jews. So why is anyone any better than the other? Yeah. So he solves that out pretty quick. But that's kind of one of the primary purposes of the letter. It's also uh, thought to be that the book of Romans is probably Paul's greatest work. It's super, um, I want to say super intelligent. Not that the rest of the Bible isn't. The whole thing's genius, if you ask me. It, comes from the mind of God, who's the ultimate genius. Yeah, it's, it's heady, though. There's a lot of upper, um, sort of upper-level doctrine. And the theology's on, like, you know, up to 10 or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all there. And, and Paul gets really wordy, and we'll see it in a couple of chapters where he'll say something, he'll say a phrase, and then he'll say it a little differently, and then he'll say it a little differently again. And he uses a lot of words to say something to really make his point. He's, Paul's a smart guy. And he puts it all on the table for this church. And I, I wonder if some of that is because he's never set foot in there before. And some of this is stuff he said in other churches from behind the pulpit, I guess, if they had those in those days. I don't know. Uh, most of them were house churches. So maybe behind the kitchen counter, he said these things. I'm not he wants really... to make sure they get it. Yeah, he's, he's like, trying to do some advanced like I don't want to make a, a reference to something that the rest of us get that you don't get. So I'm going to make sure you get this. Absolutely. And then we still struggle with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, I've taught through Romans before, and I've said this before, and I bear saying again, it is a book, uh, Hebrews is like this, a couple other books are like this, Ecclesiastes is this way, where um, chapter two by itself 
is, a, is almost weird without chapter one. Chapter three is weird without one and two. Four makes absolutely no sense without one, two, and three. It continues to build on itself. And so, like a lot of people love Romans chapter eight. I love Romans chapter eight. It's got some of the best verses of the Christian faith. And they're good. But if you don't have one through seven ahead of it, it just doesn't have the same punch. And then you go into nine with one through eight before it. And so the challenge I would give to anybody listening is that don't skip a chapter on this. Because it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it's so, so much richer. Is that is that proper English? I'm not sure. I don't know that it matters. But there's a, a depth of richness in it as it builds on itself. Uh, and so you're shortchanging yourself, I think, to skip. Maybe that's just me trying to no, I think that's get good. everybody to be consistent that's and listen good advice. all the time. Yeah, if, I, I think if people are listening... Um, they're listening along. It makes sense to uh, sort of at least have a fresh understanding of uh, what we're talking about, so it's in context, and so yeah. so that they have a reference point. I mean, someone's free to listen to this without having read the book of Romans, and they'll get some understanding of what is going on there. But it'd be uh, really good to. It's always good to go back and read Romans. Uh, it's I always agree. Good, I think. Uh, in in from a literary standpoint, um, I don't know if you've ever read. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I've read it four or five times. Every time I come back to it, I never even saw that before. It's so cool on the surface, but then there's a depth of how it builds on itself too. Romans is similar, and I'm not trying to put the writings of C.S. Lewis up against the Word of God and say they're the same. Like Lewis was a great writer, and some of his stuff is most of his stuff is amazing. But it's that same concept of it builds and it builds and it builds, and on the surface, it's cool. But as you dig into it, it's, it's like cooler and cooler. Oh, it's even yeah, it's it's even cooler than before. So, uh, or even cooler than you saw the first mm-hmm. time. And so, yeah, uh, that's the other piece of it too. So, we can dig into it from there. So we're starting in Romans chapter one because if we're going to go through Romans, one's the best place to start. And choose whatever version you want. I'm rocking the NIV mostly because, from a listener and a reader standpoint. It's probably the best version to go with. Like, I know some people are KJV or nothing. KJ, King James, the old King James is fun sometimes for me from a literary standpoint. There's a richness in the language. Um, but for a reader to listener type setup, it's hard to beat the New International Version. So um, we'll go from there. So it opens up. Uh, the way letters were written around 50 AD is totally different than how we write letters now. If I were to write Orion a letter, my letter would begin, Dear Orion, la 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 blah 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 Sincerely, Peter. It's not how they wrote letters then. No. They went, uh, Sincerely, Peter, to Orion, blah 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 blah, the end. And so the first word in the book of Romans is Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. 
and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Two, all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of that opening script of the letter. Who wrote it? Who's it written to? And Paul gives the cliff notes of who's Jesus and what's this whole thing about. And there's another piece here um, in that uh, that I probably should have covered just in the introduction of the book that I didn't want to miss. And so I want to come back to it. Um, one of the other things that went on when Paul was in Corinth, when he wrote this letter, is prior to this visit to Corinth, when Paul would go into a town, say Ephesus, they go into Ephesus to advance the gospel, uh, what they called at the time the way. That was what Christians were called. They were followers of the way, capital W-A-Y. Paul would come into the town and he would go to the Jewish synagogue or the Jewish church, basically, and he'd stand up and he'd start talking about Jesus and how Jesus related to the law and to the, the prophets and all of those things. And that's where he would win his converts. Well, in Corinth, they flat threw him out. They threw him out, tried to have him beaten and arrested and everything else. They made his life heck for uh, quite a while. And so Paul goes, fine, I'll rent a place. I'll find a hall somewhere or I'll go stand out in the marketplace, in the middle of the mall, if you will, and I'll just preach there. It was a shift in Paul's ministry where he went, you know what? If, if going to the Jews, if you will, to try and get this thing off the ground and get this going isn't working, I'll go to whoever listens. And so you, you hear it in this, in this opening introduction where um, he, he mentions the Gentiles several times. Verse 7, through him, oh, sorry, verse 5, now. Oh. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And there's a piece here, even in that verse, that's going to come up again and again in Romans, particularly in the first four or five chapters, where it says, call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Not the obedience that comes from adherence to the law. Not from the obedience that comes from circumcision or the tithe or the bringing a lamb to the temple or ceremonial washings or any of that stuff. It's the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And so he kind of gives this opening cliff notes. And then in verse 8, he just starts to tear into it. And he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Remember, he's writing to a church that's mixed, uh, Gentile converts and Jewish converts. And so he says, I give my thanks to God. Th- give first, see me stumbling over my words. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I don't know if you can hear here Paul's heart for this town. Sometimes you, you get uh, an email or a text from someone and you get this, uh, uh, this sentiment. Uh, I've been praying for you or I'll be praying for you. And it I love it. I love when someone tells me that because I mean, just the fact that they even took the t- you know the thought to say that, uh, I'm, I'm sure that it's true. 
I, I have no doubt in my mind. But he's and, just poured out this in a way that's like, I mean, I would, I'm almost like blush, you know, just to receive that. And and it's one of those cool things where he's Paul's at this point found it is the wrong word, but it's the word I've got. He's founded a lot of churches. He's got a lot of churches he's praying for. You know, his his buddy Timothy, he set him up in Ephesus. He likes that church. But Paul goes, man, I think about you guys all the time. I pray for you all the time. He says, God is my witness. Like, you, I, it's almost a I swear to God. Like, we're uncomfortable with that idea of that phrase even being in the scripture. But he goes, he goes man, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. God is my witness how I constantly Remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. And I don't want to give this away because it's going to come up at the end of the end of the book. And it's almost the funniest point in the whole Bible. Because towards the end of Romans, Paul is going to write out this step-by-step plan for how he's going to get to Rome. And none of it happens. Yeah. And it's this great lesson in... We plan and we plan and we plan and God goes, eh, sort (laughs) of. So Paul's got like this, it's mapped out. He's got his itinerary. We're going to do two days at Disneyland, a day at Epcot, and then we're going to go do an Everglades tour, and then we're going to end up in Miami. (laughs) And God goes, yeah, you're going to Miami, but it's because your car broke down and that's the only place that could fix your radiator. Like that's kind of what ends up happening. And I don't want to give it away because we're still in chapter one and we're, heck, we're only to verse 11. So we got a long way to go to get there. But it's funny, I promise, if you have a sense of humor. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You know, it's funny because we think a lot of times, we think of these, I think, I'm not going to put this on anybody but me, but these titans of our faith. You read Paul's writings and you're like, man, his faith is far beyond mine. Like I read his stuff to build my faith up. And Paul goes, man, I... I want to hear what God's doing in you too, so that I can be encouraged. We can encourage each other. That's and you so go, good. man, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but your pastors, your leaders, your your worship leaders, your Sunday school teachers, they need encouragement in their faith as well. Um, sometimes those who pour out the most end up feeling the emptiness, emptiest, emptiness, and not an English major, that's for sure. So anyway, it's just an encouragement to you to know that even those people you see as titans in the faith can be encouraged by you, and we have an obligation to them to be encouraging to them. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have, prevented, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Remember that the term Greeks and non-Greeks just had to do with, he's, he's drawn that, that definition between people who belong and people who don't belong, between Jews and Gentiles, if you will. He's, he's trying to get both ends of the spectrum, the wise and the foolish. I'm obligated to everybody, he says, and that's why I want to go to Rome. Rome, this diverse city, this city of knowledge and the center of industry and commerce and people of all types and forms from all over the place. He's like, I want to get there because, man, that's where the work can really be done. 
And then that classic, one of the classic verses of our faith and of the book of Romans, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. I'm going to keep reading. I'll go all the way uh, through the end of the next verse anyway. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It comes out of uh, Habakkuk 2.4, if you were wondering. But um, this phrase is going to come up a lot in the next couple of chapters where Paul says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And I opened this in our introduction talking about how he wrote this letter to a church that was struggling with the Jews going, we're first, and then the Gentiles. And then here's Paul going, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And it's really easy to get caught up in that and think that he's, maybe he's encouraging that thought. But Paul's not saying this in order of importance. He's just saying in order of chronology. Yes, yeah, this fact. Right. Bring salvation to everyone who believes. First, the Jews believed. And then the Gentiles. It's not a. It's not a ranking. It's just a. It's a chronology, if you will. And so then we turn the corner and we get into some verses that have been twisted and misused and misdirected in so many ways. And if you look at them, even right on the surface, you can see that they're not saying what a lot of people want them to say. So if you still got your Bible open, Romans chapter one, and we're moving into verse uh, eighteen. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. As a believer, you want to go, yeah, get them. Like, let's get all those wicked people. There's another thing here I don't want to skip over because this word, a lot of people are convinced, particularly people who um, are new Christians or who have a skim knowledge of the Bible or who have a skim knowledge of the Bible and don't even consider themselves believers, they go, look at God in the Old Testament. He's so wrathful and vengeful. And then the wrath is all gone in the New Testament. Like, is it even the same God? And here we are, Romans chapter 1, we're 18 verses in, and it goes, the wrath of God. People want to know where the wrath of God in the New Testament is. It's right here. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just the thing is, is now we get to operate under grace. God still has the same level of wrath. It's just through Christ we have a protection from it, I guess, is, is the right phrase. So again, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, both his internal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. I don't know about you. Have you ever heard of anybody who's like, well, what about that tribe, uh, that uncontacted tribe in Africa who's never heard the gospel? What happens when they die? Do they, does God just smite them because they didn't get to hear because nobody ever came to them? Right. That's right here. For since the creation of the world, verse 20, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen being understood from what was made. Do they know his name's Yahweh? Eh, probably not. But does that mean they don't know who he is? No, we, we've seen it in all sorts of, I'm not sure what the right word is, but all sorts of uncontacted tribes. These 
both in the early foundings of this country with Native American tribes, and you see it in some of these Amazonian tribes that you know have never met the outside world before, that they have some understanding of God, of a being or a deity higher than themselves. And it says it right here in Romans. It says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God's made it plain. From the foundations of the world, he's been evident in all of creation. It says, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And then verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. I don't want to skim over this verse because it's so central. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Man, you want to know what God wants from you? Mm. It's right there. Worship and thanks. It's not a whole lot. It's not this big list of, you know, do's and don'ts and this and that and the other thing. Man, do you love God? Do you glorify him for what he's given you? And are you thankful for it? That's what he's after. And so here we go. And because they didn't do it, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts became darkened. Or were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Man, we see that all the way back in Exodus, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, he's getting the stone tablets, the dimensions of the temple, and all that. And down below, the people are like, Ah, Moses has been gone forever, Aaron, make us something. And Aaron goes, well, give me all your gold. And so they give him all his gold, and he makes this calf. And they're like, that's God who led us out of Egypt. Yeah, they actually say that. They, yeah, they, it's, it's right there. They attribute what God had done for them to the calf. To the calf. That they just made. Yeah. So it's, it, And it's right here. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. And then verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. How dumb. I want to say this is not something that you see nowadays. Um, And and that might be true, uh, but... It's not any better that people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images on television or for the creation itself. And these things become key to their to what they, they glorify. You know, they, they gather around the water cooler and talk about whatever show was on Tuesday night at nine or whatever. I don't even know what the schedules are, <laughs> but I but DVR that, everything. So I hate commercials. There you go, yeah, forget so. nine o'clock. I gotta get to bed. Yeah. No, but they, uh, they, they are, they're exchanging the glory of God for something. So even though this, you know, this sounds bananas, like, oh, we don't do that. I think this is still getting done. And I think I can even relate it to some people inside the church. And I'm really trepidatious to say this because it may cost us all of our listeners that we don't even already have. But um, it's an it's an uncomfortable topic to discuss, but it is the truth. We see it in the Christian church with um, people who can't come to church or to prayer or feel like God is missing from them because they don't have their cross necklace mm. or their um, their special favorite Bible mm-hmm. or their... 
crucifix over their kitchen. I'm stepping on toes I don't necessarily want to step on, but those are images of the immortal God made by man that some people feel like they can't worship without. Yeah, they put power into these things and where there, there is no power but in God himself. It's, dare I say, nearly as dangerous as hammering a calf out of gold to go, this is my God. Sure, it's, I just, can't, it's just more subtle. I can't come to God without this thing I can put into my hand. And God goes, don't put me in your hand. I'm not there. Stop trying to define me because I am, every time we, okay, we go, hey, we got God figured out. God is love. So anything love is God. And God goes, ah, and so much more than that. Love can't speak light into being. And we go, okay, God is the creator of all things. And God goes, ah, I'm so much more than that. I'm love. And you're like, wait, I thought you said, and God's like, will you quit trying to define me? Follow me. Mm-hmm. Know me. And we never can. We're never going to have a full knowledge of God. He wants us to try. Bingo. We should always be trying. And so back to the text, I'm so glad we covered that, but I kind of wish we didn't because I feel like we may have stepped on some toes, but I'll say this probably several times as we get through Romans, because there's a few uncomfortable topics that come up of, we can't make the scripture say anything it doesn't say. And I also can't pretend that it doesn't say something that it does. And so it's right there. It says they exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And I want to, I kind of wanted to read to the end of this little bit of a passage, but I want to draw your eyes back to something in verse 24 before we go forward. Because people will say, uh, God made me do these things, or God makes us sinful. It's right here, and it's not. What it says is, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Mm-hmm. These sinful desires come from right within us. God doesn't make us sinful. All it says is because we refuse to acknowledge God, because we refuse to glorify him or give thanks to him, he just turned us over to whatever we could come up with. And then Paul, to the church in Rome, gives this list. And the list that's been uh, twisted and messed with for a long time, and I'm going to read it and we're going to talk about it. Verse 24, because of, or sorry, verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. And I read all the way to there for a reason, because far too often the church, and I don't mean the church where you go, I don't mean the church where I go, I mean the church has handled this topic 
so poorly. The topic of homosexuality. We've all, well, I won't say we all, but most of us have seen like the, the churches on TV who are holding up signs just condemning outright God hates homosexuals. They use worse words than that, but um, I'm trying to be gentle for the audience. But they're holding up these signs, and they're all over the news and everywhere. And I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, that a majority of the world thinks that that's God's perspective. And a lot of people use Romans 1 as a proof text for that. It says God gave them over to these shameful lusts and they abandoned natural relations for unnatural ones. And God just hates that. But in the same passage, in the same context, it calls out greed, wickedness, gossip, hello, uh, murder, strife, deceit, malice. And we're like, yeah, gays and murderers. But it even says they disobey their parents. It's all on the same list. Why are we not uh, out on the street corner and some days with my kids, I want to be there holding up a sign that says God hates disobedient children because it's the same passage and the same context. Newsflash, God hates nobody. Mm. We hate that right in here, that gossip and slanderer and murder. You know, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. He says it in, in Matthew chapter five. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, You've already committed murder in your heart. We who hate are as bad as this. And chapter 2 is going to hit it really hard. So buckle your seatbelts. If you think 1 is rough, you just wait till we get to 2. And, and, and don't lose me. One of the things I want to say is, uh, we said early on that Romans is kind of Paul's grand dissertation. And one of the things he's doing is he's trying to set us up for the good news. But to get to the good news, he wants you to know how bad it really is. Because if you don't understand how bad it really is, you don't get the magnitude of how good the news really is. And so he talks about homosexuality. He talks about wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy says these are all the same people. Not that homosexuals are all of these things, but anybody who's any of these things, we're all sinners. And that's because we refuse to acknowledge God. God let us run wild with our everything we could come up with. Some of us come up with different stuff than others, but don't be guilty of judging someone because their sin looks different than yours. We're going to get to it later in Romans where it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. The good news is, is Christ came for sinners. And Paul says elsewhere, of whom I'm the worst. If Paul is the worst of sinners, it's because I hadn't been born yet, I think. But we're going to hit the last part of Romans 1 here and we're going to close up for tonight. Or for today or for this morning or this afternoon, depending on (laughs) when you're listening, I suppose. I don't know why I said tonight. Don't give it away. I know, right? Although they knew God's righteousness, verse 32, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. That's pretty rough. Romans 1 ends in a really rough place. And here's a newsflash. Romans 2 doesn't end much better. I will tell you this, that Romans 2 starts out with, if you're looking at any of these people who fit this list that we just read, if you're sitting here listening and you're going, yeah, all those people are terrible. Romans 2, 1 pretty much says, 
uh, you're in big trouble because you're judgmental, and that's sinful too. So we all should probably dial it back just a little bit. Approach Romans 2 with a little bit of humility and really look forward to, it really starts to turn about midway through chapter 5. But uh, I really want to encourage you guys to stick with this study of Romans because like I said, it builds and it builds and it builds and it gets so good. <laughs>